Hello and welcome back to the Horror from the High Desert podcast. My name is Scotty Milder and my guest this week is author Douglas Ford. A little bit about Doug. According to Stoker award-winning author Tim Wagoner, Douglas Ford, quote, wields language like a sinister surgeon with a night black scalpel. His collection of weird fiction, Ape in the Ring and Other Tales of the Macabre and Uncanny, was published by Manus Hart Press in 2020, earning praise from Al Goingback, who called it, quote, a must-have collection for every horror library. Doug followed that collection up with The Beasts of Azaria County, a novel released by D&T Publishing in 2021. His short fiction has appeared in a wide variety of publications, from Darkman Digest to Diabolical Plots, and the novella The Reattachment appeared in 2019, courtesy of Madness Heart Press. He has also just recently released a novella called Babel. Um, we're going to talk about that here today. That is from Madness Heart Press, and also from Madness Heart Press, released on May 14th, is the short novel The Trick. Doug is also one of three authors, along with Holly Ray Garcia and Rebecca Rowland, who contributed to the Table for Three charity anthology all about food horror. This will be coming out on June 2nd, and uh, all proceeds from this are going to benefit a Texas food bank. So, here we go with Douglas Ford. Yeah, well, welcome back to, this is the second episode of Horror from the High Desert, and I'm really happy this week to have, I would say one of, you're rapidly becoming one of my favorite writers. Really? Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. I'm humbled by that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, so to introduce, this is Douglas Ford, of course. We've been in a number of anthologies together. That's right. And then uh, we met very briefly I guess I saw you at StokerCon last year, and then we, we got to talk a little bit at KillerCon. Um, but this is like our first time having like a real like in-depth conversation. So That's right. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, this should be, should be fun. And I wanted to start with, so on your bio, I'm just going to quote something real quick. It says, according to Stoker award-winning author Tim Wagoner, Douglas Ford, quote, wields language like a sinister surgeon with a night black scalpel. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that quote. And I would say that that's pretty accurate. How can I not use that in a bio? I mean, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, to start off, I guess um, I want to get back to Beasts of Asari County a little later, but it was the first thing of yours I actually read. We'd been in a couple um, anthologies together, but I hadn't gotten to your stories yet. And then when I was driving out to KillerCon, I decided, okay, I'm going to put Beasts of Asari County on uh, as an audiobook. And there was something about that book driving. I don't know. Have you ever been through uh, like West Texas? I haven't actually. I've been as far as uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, if you go west of there, <laughs> get into <laughs> the panhandle. I mean, and I don't want to offend anyone who's from West Texas. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say this also uh, applies to eastern New Mexico, where I'm at. Um, but that is like a godforsaken country <laughs> um like you're just going through these like dry dusty flat plains with like ancient grain silos that kind of rise out of the ground like bones of dinosaurs or something like, like american gothic I it's very american gothic <laughs> And there's something, you know, Beast of Azari County, it's obviously set in Florida. It's got a much more like swampy kind of Southern Gothic milieu. Mm -hmm. But there was something about listening to that book while driving through West Texas that just like, it was unsettling. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, it was one That's of the more cool. 
yeah it was very cool <laughs> so i wanted to i want to talk about that a little bit and i wanted to, but before we kind of come back to that book so you're in florida right you're are you from yes. florida i actually am i was born in miami so born in miami okay i'm one of those rare native floridians and i've lived in various parts of the state for almost all my life except for one year where i was in england uh, oh wow for, but um <laughs> yeah i'm a i'm Died in the wool Floridian, apparently. Yeah. So. <laughs> How do you think? Uh, because I've only been to Florida once. Um, I was in, and I I went to the part of Florida that I think everyone goes to. I went to Orlando to go to Disney uh -huh. World, and this was when I think I was a freshman in college. Um, so you know, coming up on thirty years ago now. <laughs> but there was a even just in that brief amount of time I was in Florida, and when we drove, me and my family, we drove up the coast to St. Augustine. There's something about Florida that is like, it's hard to kind of put your finger on. What is it like? Just talk about the like, you know, growing up there and, and yeah. how you think that kind of informed your decision to move into being a horror writer. Um, okay. So uh, Florida is incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm. You only hear about sort of red Florida right now, if you watch the news, right. but Florida is very diverse and so you're talking you know, with Orlando, you have the hyper real Florida, you know, mm. the, the Jean Baudrillard, the, the simulacra, <laughs> the theme parks. And then but you get a little outside of it and then you get into what the um, the tourist industry here calls the real Florida, where you mm. get in the um, um, the parks and the swamps and the uh, some of the beautiful springs that are around here. And mm. um, it's not all flat. You get to Ocala, it's rolling hills. So mm. I kind of try to reinvent Florida a little bit into a Gothic space. Yes. And that's how I, I was reading a lot of William Faulkner mm. and, you know, falling under the spell of the Yakna Patafa County. And I thought there needs to be a county in Florida, but it needs to be horror. It's got to have <laughs> monsters and weird, weird stuff. And so I wrote a story, you know, in the early 2000s, where there was the first time I, I used Viseria County, mm. which is made up. There's no such place as Viseria County. And yeah. it kind of, it's very fluid. And the, the fluidity of Viseria County is kind of informed by my sense of what Florida is, which is very much a fluid place. It's, <laughs> it's diverse. It's um, complex as um, my... I, I allude to this in, in a new book that's coming out. It's not even supposed to be part of the North American continent. Mm. It, it should have been part of Africa. Interesting. And yet somehow through rift, it somehow got attached here and it's been underwater. It's been above water. Mm. And it's that, that weirdness. It's just kind of soaked into the land. You know, the, it's the, it's the limestones, the coral underneath, it's mm -hmm. the fossils. It's, it, it's just weirdness being born out of the dirt itself sometimes. Well, there was something I read about Florida. I'm terrified of the water. I think that I'm a total desert rat. <laughs> and you should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, being that I'm also a horror writer, um, mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the things I'm terrified by. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by, like, cave diving. Oh, yeah. Um, and I never realized, I read somewhere that, I mean, there's a network of caves underwater caves beneath florida that go on uh -huh. for miles and miles and people go cave diving down there and die a lot of the time yeah, so you absolutely. just have a lot of like floating corpses beneath <laughs> Florida. That's right. that's right you know seeping you the souls of the dead are seeping <laughs> from the soil itself because of that 
Yeah, there's some fascinating places like that, and mm -hmm. uh, especially the north north part of Florida and the central part part of Florida. Mm -hmm. And some of them are just gorgeous, but it's it's kind of a sublime gorgeousness where it's right. like you know, there's awe and just absolute utter terror at the same time. Because I'm mm -hmm. with you, I I'm a Floridian who stays out of the water. It's like no <laughs> nothing good can happen there. You know? I'm not a yeah. diver, so yeah. No, I've uh, I've. I'm trying to think if I've ever actually been in the ocean beyond my knees. Um, <laughs> I think one time I went out maybe up to my waist. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was when I was in France. And I think that's probably the furthest I've ever actually gone from shore. So what part of Florida are you in right now? You don't have to give us like your address. Or anything. No, it's okay. I mean, I'm yeah. in the um, southwest part. I'm on the, uh, the, the coast of the Gulf. Oh, okay. And I'm I'm between Fort Myers and Sarasota. I'm actually in Sarasota County. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. When and where I want to talk more about Vesaria County, but where in your mind do you kind of place that in the geographically? So at one point in Visa Vesaria County, I lose to the fact that it's S it's kind of a backwards S shape. Mm -hmm. And that allows me to kind of move it around a little bit. Mm, nice. Um, That's clever. The part that is uh, that we see in uh, Bisa Vesaria County involves a little bit of the area around me. Okay. Uh, there's a called Warm Mineral Springs that shows up as Vesaria Springs in that book. Mm, and, um, right. it, I also imagine stretching towards an area that's off to the uh, east of me, kind of in the middle called Arcadia. Mm -hmm. and, um, I feel like Arcadia would be part of it. But part of that S shape would go a little further north, as well as a little further south, hitting okay. some swampy, just kind of the edge of the Everglades a little bit. So it definitely, from reading some of your stuff, it definitely has that feel that that kind of swampy Everglades kind yeah. of feel, in particular. And I want to get back to it. Little Lugosi really kind of gives <laughs> you that vibe of um, just like wetness, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's wet. It's <laughs> wet it's a very wet book yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a that's a good way to describe it i'm fascinated by and i think some of this is uh for me being from new mexico and i set uh, a lot of my stories either in new mexico or colorado sometimes utah sometimes arizona very much the four corners region i feel like there are definitely parts of the country that you drive either you drive through or you know you experience in some way you go for a visit and you just feel something there you know just like uh you know is it a power is it a is it a vibe is it a you know sometimes i feel like there are parts of new mexico where it, it feels like it, have you read stephen king's dark tower books at all yes so you know when he talks about the thinny those spots where like reality just kind of frays a little bit uh -huh. there's definitely like if you get up around the four corners of new mexico you know new mexico arizona utah and uh colorado it's got that kind of feel yeah I felt like just like I said, the one time I was in Florida, like it just had a little bit of that. Like there's a something hyper real there. Mm -hmm. I think when I've been in Maine, Maine definitely has that kind of feeling. So I'm fascinated by writers who can kind of capture that. And I feel like that's something you're really like. I really felt that from Beast of Asari County. And I think really from um, Little Lugosi, just just that sense of like capturing a sense of place not just the specificity of the people and the geography, but like that, that kind of undefinable sort of sense of something 
menacing or uh it's where nature and myth meet in a lot of ways mm. because you talk about the natural world and how we sort of build a sort of our myths around the natural world mm-hmm. which uh it, it almost saying it that way almost makes it sound like we're talking about folk horror which you know little ghosty kind of veers a little bit into mm-hmm. uh, a folk horror space but that to me how we invest land with stories and myth mm-hmm. That fascinates me as a writer. It sounds like it fascinates you too. It sounds like Very you much. sense it from where you are. I love that stuff. Yeah. Well, there are some places you go to that just feel like a dead battery. You know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> and I'm not going to name them. I don't, again, I don't want to insult anybody <laughs> who's listening in one of these places, but you kind of know what I mean. A lot of, sometimes cities can feel like that. Yeah. Where it's just like, there's no energy. There's just nothing. It's just, it feels anonymous. Um, it could be anywhere. And then there are places that are just the opposite of that. If anyone listens to uh, anyone listening to this podcast, I have another podcast called The Weirdest Thing. And my friend Amelia, last year, people will remember, she was off of the show for a while. She had to go out to Virginia for an acting gig. And I drove out there with her. And we drove, you know, we drove through the panhandle of Texas. We drove through Oklahoma, which was definitely a different vibe than I think we expected. It was very, it was much more like welcoming and friendly. But then we hit the line, the Arkansas state line, and it was like immediately hitting that state line. It, there was something in us both that was just like, get us the fuck out of here. <laughs> and we we basically just blew through Arkansas. And I don't even know what it was. It was just a vibe that we both kind of like grabbed onto. And then we hit Tennessee and it was fine. It was very strange. So yeah, there is something about these places, like you said, that feels mythical and feels ancient in a way and i think if you're talking about a place like florida like you said i never knew this about it being originally not part of north america but there's there's just there's something there that's different it seems like yeah something is waiting to in these places is waiting for somebody to peel it back and see what what kind of what's what's trapped underneath and um I, I love that. And I love it when they find something weird and bizarre in Florida. I love finding weird, bizarre stuff. <laughs> in Florida. Problem is people make it up a lot of times. So you have to find mm-hmm. where, where does the boundary between the real and the, the fake exist? But of course, mm-hmm. that's the hyper real. It is built into the very essence and identity of Florida. So there's it leaves a lot of room for a writer to play with mm-hmm. like that. And um, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. Like mm-hmm. um, the near me is a area called Estero that I, I kind of worked it into the first book that Madness Heart Press published by me. It's out of print right now. It's going to come back into print. No, uh, the attachment, they had a, a correction settlement there that was established by people who believe the earth was hollow. Mm. And they had this, the, their leader, Cyrus Teed, created a commune and they even created their own globe. They invented a globe that would basically oh, wow. illustrate how Florida, you know, the earth was really hollow, that we're really inside. Mm-hmm. And you can go to, the, it's now a state park, and you can go around the settlement and you can look at this globe that they created. They were so, they were so convinced of their myth that they actually created a 3D model of it. And then when you read more about this, this settlement within the people in it, they were just absolutely bonkers. I mean, they believed believed that, well, first of all, Teed had to have nine wives based on the nine planets. And he had Mm. them all in one particular house. And when he died, they were convinced he was going to rise from the dead. So they put his body in a bathtub and just loaded up with with ice. And they left him there for a few days thinking he's going to rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. And of course, he didn't. 
So what they did was they built a mausoleum near the water and <laughs> they built it near the water in time for a hurricane to come and wipe, just basically sweep them out the wow. sea. So who knows? Maybe guys <laughs> from the dead. I love that stuff. Well, I love that because it's so primal and and so yeah. I mean you know people talk about I think it's people throw around the term Lovecraftian quote unquote way too easily but what I think when I think of Lovecraftian fiction I don't necessarily think of like Cthulhu and you know whatever like the Cthulhu mythos and but what he tapped into with New England and I feel like you're getting at in Florida what I try to get at in New Mexico and this region is there's something primal and kind of unknowable just under the surface. Yeah. You know, when I think about Florida and New Mexico, there's some interesting parallels that you wouldn't think of. You know, they're both colonized originally by the Spanish. You know, you guys have the oldest uh, city in the United States in St. Augustine. We have the second oldest in Santa Fe. Yeah. You know, so there's just this reach or this deep and bloody history you know just over the last say 500 years or so and then you get you know beneath that you get that that kind of primal almost like Werner Herzog kind of (laughs) yeah sense of nature yeah um someone who's smarter than me would describe this as as something you know the numinous and I think Mm -hmm. that's the feeling that we're talking about Mm -hmm. that it is such a big part of that Lovecraftian or that cosmic horror thing Right. And it's just that awe, you know, that you mm-hmm. feel in the face of just this unfeeling, just overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly incomprehensible cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And if I can, I always try to capture something like that. And I don't know how successful I ever am. Oh, I think you do. And I want to, so I guess I want to back up a little bit and just like, tell us a little bit about what, what was, so you grew up in Miami, were you like right in Miami? Well, not the downtown area, the metropolitan, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, the Miami-Dade area I grew up in. Okay. Um, an area is called the Kendall Perrine area. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and um, so that was where I spent my my teenage, you know, from the time I was born. And my parents still live in the same house. So that was my upbringing. So I, I had a very, you know, very cosmopolitan upbringing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was exposed to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different foods and and then I moved to, you know, when I did my uh, graduate work, I moved to Tallahassee, which is an amazing town, but it's so different. And then yeah. suddenly you're, you realize to go to, to get to the South, when you live in Miami, you have to go North. Mm-hmm. And then it was just such a different place. <laughs> People were different. It was a little, you know, it was a college town. So it was still diverse. And then, mm-hmm. then you go to the area I am now, it, it is not as diverse. It is very, mm-hmm. it's getting more diverse because, you know, people are moving yeah. to Florida like crazy, but that kind of thing definitely shaped how I look at the world, you know, mm-hmm. trying to look at the different vantage points whenever I can. And what was it that drew you? I mean, I guess I would ask when, did you find yourself kind of drawn to horror and being a writer or being a horror writer? And what do you think it was that drew you that direction? Okay. That, that was from the very beginning. I mean, I, Mm. I'm old enough where I can say I come in right at the end of the monster kid thing. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the 1970s. And so I remember when there was creature feature Mm -hmm. and universal horror movies on a Saturday afternoon with, Mm -hmm. You know, being able to watch two of them and but I was also encouraged strangely enough by my my family who isn't necessarily married to the genre but somehow I was encouraged to to explore it 
Um, I had monster model kits as a kid. And mm. uh, I remember distinct, there was just something about the genre that spoke to me at a very early age. I remember what my dad watching um, Don't Look Now on TV when I was a little kid. I, oh, wow. I on TV, that movie on TV. On TV. <laughs> And of course, you know, you, you get all the, the sexy stuff with Donald Sutherland cut out of it. But I, right. I don't think I watched the whole film, but I, I remember distinctly seeing the end of that movie and not mm-hmm. to give away the end of that movie. But, oh, my God, it's horrifying. <laughs> and that, that experience of watching that stuck with me. My parents would let me stay up and watch, you know, scary movies. I love that feeling. And I've said this before to other people. I think becoming the writer I am, I think I'm chasing that feeling, that exhilaration. Mm-hmm of being afraid to walk down the hallway. I know something's going to jump out at me because my <laughs> parents would do that. <laughs> and when I tell that story, in fact, I told that story at the killer con you and I met at, mm-hmm. and I mentioned this to my, my parents are, are still living in Miami. And I said, yeah, I told them a story how you used to scare me in the hallway. And they said, Oh my, you can't tell people that story. They're gonna think <laughs> we we're terrible. I said, no, that was great. Yeah. That, was exhilara- that was an exhilarating experience. Yeah, my dad used to do the same thing to me whenever we had this enormous basement under our house that my dad just had packed full of tools and stuff and it had multiple rooms and alcoves. And whenever I had to go down there, there, the light switch was on the very far end. Uh-huh. And so whenever we turn it off, I just, and it was without fail, he'd be behind me and we'd be creeping towards the stairs and then he'd start making noises and stuff behind me. <laughs> um, I, it was I the same thing. I loved it, you know. I still get kind of freaked out in my garage when I close the garage door. I got to make sure I'm near the light switch because I won't be able to find it. There's something about that experience of being in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. and that's still, it, there's still something so primal about it. So it's just mm-hmm. so wired in us. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you're talking about that that era of like the creature features and stuff because uh, being on TV, because I think I came along kind of just after that because uh-huh. I grew up probably more in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. I was born in the end of the 70s. And so I remember a little bit of that. But what I remember, and we talked about this on the first episode, me and my friend Mandy, um, you know, I had an older brother um, who, uh, actually, no, I told I told this story on The Weirdest Thing, on the last episode of The Weirdest Thing when I had Rebecca Rowland on. But I had an older brother who would always introduce me to, I guess, movies that were age inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> And so I remember you're talking about Don't Look Now, and the movie that I remember most clearly was The Changeling, the George C. Scott. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember watching that with my brother and his girlfriend now, and now my sister-in-law, now his wife. And uh, I was probably five years old, maybe something like that. (laughs) And it was just, it was too much for me. And yet I was hooked. I fell in love with, I didn't even know that horror was a genre. Like I, you know, I was too young to even think of it that way, but I fell in love with monsters and ghosts and just everything creepy, very young. Isn't it funny how that the, these traumas, they they (laughs) seduce us in this way. It's so strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, I've kind of given my brother shit for that in the year since, and he's he's pretty unapologetic. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it's like, but I wouldn't have it any other way, you know. Uh, yeah, you give him shit, but you want to thank him too. It's like, thank <laughs> right, you helping me make helping make me who who I am today. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, we've been in a few anthologies together. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your short fiction because. 
and I reread some of the some of the stuff, particularly some of the stuff from the anthologies we're in together, you know, sort of in preparation for this. And you have something like it's hard for me to explain the the effect that your short fiction has because mm-hmm. it's very disorienting mm-hmm. and it's too easy to use words like surreal, you know what I mean? But I was thinking about it. I reread The Layover, which is in the half that you see. Yeah. And I reread Officer, what, what is it? It's from... Uh, that one's from The Half You See. Um, no, that's from The Half You See. Yeah. yeah, Layover is from Dancing in the Shadows. Yes. Yeah. And particularly the Officer, what is it? Officer Baby Blue Eyes? Baby Boy Blue, yeah. Uh, Officer Baby Boy Blue. There's something about that story that is like extremely upsetting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in in a way that of course as we were just talking about i absolutely love and i was trying to like really pinpoint what it is and i feel like this is even true of some of your longer stuff is you're very good at strategically withholding stuff and kind of never quite giving us like the full answer so i was thinking it's almost like the parable of like the blind man and the elephant like you never quite get your hands around it what's happening and it's very disorienting and very disturbing with officer baby boy blue i'm not entirely sure what happened in that story (laughs) (laughs) and i don't need it i don't need the explanation but it sticks with you because and i think because there's a part of my brain that's trying to create a a context and nothing quite works you know what i mean (laughs) well yeah i i think in terms of short fiction the writers who are probably the most influential on me were Mm -hmm. amazing at the short form like uh shirley jackson who Mm -hmm. everybody cites shirley jackson but it's true i mean she we we should all just call her mom right (laughs) and well she she was also very good at that very same thing yeah. And I would I would include Charles Beaumont from that same era. Mm. Phenomenal. And Flannery O'Connor. I think one of the right. stories that really, there's two stories that really made me go, oh, I want to do that. And one of them is A Good Man's Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. That's a great story. And um, Joyce Carol Oates is Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? When I read those at a very young age, those were the ones that kind of turned the light bulb on for me, where I went, oh, this is what short fiction can do. I want to do this. And for both of them, they leave a lot of space for you to fill in the blanks. And I think that's what captured my imagination, where the fiction that appeals most to me is the fiction that allows you to fill in some blanks. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's kind of a cliche to say this, but as writers, if we overshow, if we explain everything, we tend to bring it down to earth in a way that Mm -hmm. it diminishes its power. If you leave a little bit of it unsaid, the reader will fill in the blanks and it will be more, I think, at least for me, more impactful. And that particular story that you're referring to, mm-hmm. this is in my, that that story is in my uh, new collection, The Infection Party. And I have a little in the back. I kind of, I had fun. I wrote some background for each story. Oh, so, I'm going to have to pick that up. Thank you. And and yeah. um, that story is actually based on a personal experience. Really? And, you know, I was talking about the monster model kits. So mm. I was, when I was a kid, I built these model kits and that, you know, I had these exacto blades and everything. And so the character in that story is building a model kit and I cut my hand in the story. Mm. He cuts something else. He cuts another part of his body. Which is far, far worse in the story. Yeah. 
I cut my yeah. hand in a way that was really bad. And mm. uh, I remember having to be taken to the emergency room. And just like in that story, there was some kind of emergency. And mm. I still don't know what it was, but there, like in the story, there were all these firefighters coming in. Now, of course, this is a memory from long ago. I may have my own recollection of it, maybe right. long now. I may have I may have filled in the blanks a little bit with my imagination. There was a policeman who came up to me while I was waiting on a gurney, waiting for somebody to close this awful hole in my hand. Huh. And he had glasses on, like the character in that story. Mm-hmm. And he pulled up, he said, That's not bad. This is bad. And he lifted the glasses and he showed me this these horrible stitches that look like the Frankenstein monster of the molecule. Wow. So that cool. So that is all that real. That was real. Wow. Everything else is, isn't real in that story. But it stuck with me. That experience was so me- meaningfully weird to me mm-hmm. that I knew I wanted to somehow tell that story somehow yeah. or tell a story with that in it. And that, thank God, I, I finally found, it took several tries before I found the right story to go with that experience. Well, that the imagery in that story, because I, I read it a while ago after, I think I read that one immediately after I finished Peace of Osiris County. And then I just reread it the other night. And the imagery in that story is so disturbing. Um, and I don't want to spoil much, but, you know, you kind of talked about it, you know, just the image of being in the emergency room and all of a sudden some catastrophe happened. We don't know what, mm-hmm. with the firefighters who have been burned being right. pulled through on the gurneys. And then just the uncanniness of this police officer coming up. The idea that that's actually all of that is true is makes it even more terrifying. <laughs> and I think, you know, when talking about the idea of like leaving things unsaid, because it's something I try to do too. I think you do it, um, be honest, I think you do it more successfully than I do. Where I, I had a I had an ex-girlfriend who would get so mad at me about, because she was like, I, you never end at the ending. You always end before the ending. <laughs> I said, well, that's the point. You know, I want it yeah. because I don't want to give you, I don't want to spoon feed you. Like, oh, here's the explanation. Because once you do that, I think to me, horror is about you know the irrational invading irrational space yeah so as soon as you explain it then it becomes rational and it's not horror anymore it becomes science fiction well you used the right term a minute ago it's the uncanny that's Mm -hmm. exact that's that's what you're describing to a t right and have you have you ever read the the shirley jackson story the summer people Yes. By any chance. As you were talking you know, about this, that was the story I was thinking of. Yeah. That one ends at a place where some people get really frustrated with it because, okay, what, mm-hmm. what happens? But if you read it in the right mood, the right context, mm-hmm. that's the perfect ending. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that story can end is, you know, I don't want to give it away to anybody just in case somebody wants to read it. But it is the kind of story that leaves you to fill in the blanks mm-hmm. of what has just occurred. Right. And it's beautiful. Although, have you ever read 112263, the, the Stephen King story? Yeah. Uh, the novel, excuse me. Um, yeah. He talks about that story in the novel because the character mm-hmm. teaches that story. Right. And it That's right. That's right. Because he characterizes that story in a way that I think is completely wrong. Do you remember <laughs> what he says about it? I don't. I don't. He says it's a story of, and I don't think I'm ruining anything by saying this because I think it's wrong. He says it's mm. a story of cannibalism. And I, I thought, where where the hell is the cannibalism? Yeah. it's I, it's I That's always 
throwing me off. Well, it's interesting. I love Stephen King. And, and I think like most people of our generation, relative generations, like mm-hmm. Stephen King was definitely the gateway drug for a lot of us. But oh, one yeah. thing, uh, he has a thing in his, um, I believe it's in Dance Macabre, his book, uh, I want to say it's from 83. It's kind of his nonfiction mm-hmm. treatise on the genre. Yeah. And he's talking about how he feels like it's a cop out to not show the horror at the end. You know, he says he understands how, you know, the moment you show it, it loses its power. He says, but to not show it as a cop out. And I've always thought, even as a kid who worshiped Stephen King, I was like, that's wrong. Like, that's incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's interesting. I have to go back and reread 112263, or at least reread the part about the summer people, because I don't remember that. It's a a great novel. I mean, it's a fantastic novel. It's one of his better ones, yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. But that part that you're referring to in Dance Macabre, I think that's where he says this, uh, where he says, I try to to scare you. I try to terrify you. If that mm-hmm. doesn't work, I try to horrify you. Right. And if that doesn't work, I just gross you out. Is that, yeah. I'm so, paraphrasing yeah. that. Yeah, it's the, yeah. I'm not proud. <laughs> yeah, I'm not proud. Is, yeah, exactly. But he does it so well. Yeah, when I teach horror, I always quote that and you know talk about Stephen King's three levels of fear. And then when he talks about you know terror is the finest emotion, that's him talking about the idea of the uncanny. Yeah, there's something, and I think that's what you capture in uh, with the police officer so well. Mm-hmm. Is it's like it's a police officer should be familiar, should be comforting, right? Right. But just you know, with the context of this chaos going on behind him, and you can't see his eyes, he's from the from the jump he's completely alien and unsettling and then as the story progresses you just build on that feeling how, how'd you just put that he's from the jump from the jump yeah <laughs> i love that that's a great phrase oh really yeah that's, I, don't, <laughs> I don't even know where i got that but um, great. <laughs> yeah it's uh that's i remember reading it like i said last year after finishing beast of Osaria county and then reread it just a few days ago and it was actually scarier the second time which mm-hmm. doesn't always happen you know a lot of times you read something and it's you have this great first impression of it you go back and things just don't you know don't have that power this one actually it's like a cumulative power to that story i felt like well thank you i yeah. i appreciate that i don't think anybody said that to me before of course i don't not many people have told me they've read something more than once <laughs> uh, thank you i appreciate yeah. you saying it. and then i felt the same way about two other stories just mentioned again i mentioned the layover um which uh-huh. is in dancing in the shadows uh which is the tribute to Anne rice that uh rebecca roland and owen pascal edited yes wonderful and then another story of yours that I, I I just read it for the first time recently is the story Wasps. And that was a oh. very similar in that, you know, I thought I knew where the story was going. And then it took about four left turns. And I felt myself just it felt like being trapped in a room with no exit. You know, like it was, mm-hmm. I felt completely disoriented by that story in the best possible way. Oh, thank you very much. And it's another one where it's like, I don't know exactly what happened, but I don't want to know anymore than you gave me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's, that's got, I, I'm starting to think maybe all my stories have some kind of trauma related to them. That's another one that has a trauma mm. related. Mm. Yeah. It's a story about the house on that street where something terrible happened that mm. I think every neighborhood mm. has. Right. And it, whether it's a haunted house or it's a house that just becomes a, a you know, the site of something forbidden, something mm. uncanny. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. that was kind of what I was going for. Yeah. You know? 
and you know it's set up to be like you think it's the house where you know the guy murders his family i don't think that's a spoiler because you say that you know kind of right away and then where it goes is so strange and different Mm -hmm. and it ends on a note and again i really don't want to spoil it that is terrifying and absolutely heartbreaking like just Uh feels like you just reach in with a spoon and scoop out a heart you know kind of the very last line of that story thank you thanks yeah it's very 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 powerful very effective and i felt the same way about the layover where the you know you have a button at the very end of that story that just kind of ties it all together and just you Mm -hmm. know i felt the goose flesh you know all over the body oh thank you Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i I appreciate all that you're very good for my ego scott (laughs) well you know the whole point of starting this podcast is really just wanted to talk to the people whose work that i really am enjoying and that's why you were one of the first people I thought of because of this. Because oh. there aren't, you know, a lot of writers I've read that I've discovered recently that, like, you can just get under my skin in a way that is that is pretty hard to do. You know, having read horror for the last 35 years or whatever, you know, it, it can be pretty, I can be pretty hard to impress. Oh. And uh, you, you, your stuff really just, you come at it from a sideways direction that is very unique and kind of just gets past all my sort of natural defenses i guess thank you so i want to talk a little bit about some of your longer stuff so i just read Babel, which is a novella and that's also from madness heart press right yes that's correct and that just recently came out like within the last few weeks i think that's part of their pocketbook series yeah Hmm. which is got some great stuff in in that series yeah this is the first one out of that series that i've read i'm gonna have to go and check out some of the others talk about that story a little bit what was the genesis of that so I um I spent Christmas in Sweden last year and yeah I think I remember you're posting pictures on Facebook <laughs> yeah and so before I left I started just I started goofing around with this story it's basically about a kid a toddler whose babble it turns mm-hmm. out it's really a form of Latin mm-hmm. and I was just goofing around with this opening scene with the this woman being told that you know it's it's Latin it's and mm-hmm. that your kid is speaking Latin and I was just kind of having fun with the scene and I left it unfinished we went to Sweden and then I went into this we we were in um Corona and in Corona there is this really old church mm-hmm. and it's a wooden church and there were this I don't want to give too much detail about it in case somebody wants to read it, but there was this, these paintings inside the church that were really just strange to me. And, and they told a story that I couldn't figure out what the story was. And it turned out it had a lot to do with the, um, the, the indigenous people of Sweden, the Sami people who were basically nomadic reindeer herders and how they were basically colonized. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw this and I thought, God, this is, I kept thinking about this, this scene that took place, you know, it was on Christmas where I saw this church and this, mm-hmm. this, these paintings. And then John Baltusberger messaged me while I was over there and said, Hey, I'm starting a, this pocketbook series. I need something between 10,000 and 15,000 words from you. I want, mm-hmm. you know, and he made it sound like he wanted it fast. And I realized as soon as I got that message, those three things coalesced. And I realized I know what's happening in this, this, story i'm writing mm. that i thought was gonna be a short story it's really a i guess it's a novelette right and i i was able to come back and really focus on what i saw and the character i started before i went on this trip actually fit in really seamlessly to this story that i kind of 
started to, it started to form around mm-hmm. form around me. So it was just kind of a good timing kind of thing. You know, I'm I know a little bit about that history of with uh, Sweden and Norway and the Sami people. Some yeah. of this is, you know, I'm a metal dude, so of course I'm fascinated by uh, <laughs> Scandinavia because yeah. all the metal bands that come out of Scandinavia. Right. And there's the whole history of, you know, the black metal bands burning all those old wooden churches, which you, al- I'm again, I'm going to try and <laughs> be a little circumspect. You, you, I felt like you kind of winked at that or nodded at yeah. that a little bit <laughs> without well, being too direct i, I kind of did yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i'm fascinated by you know we don't think about this happening in europe but and again you know you being from florida me being from new mexico we're both from areas where the colonial history of this country is very present i think mm-hmm. you know top of mind in a way where it might not be in some other places you know you have uh and again it was you know that spanish colonization and what was done to the indigenous people in our country you don't think of that you know you think of europe and you think well those are the indigenous people of europe but uh scandinavia has its own kind of history with that you know that's actually very much parallels kind of what has happened here and it's not something that a lot of people know about Mm -hmm. so i love that you got into that because i thought that it's such a rich vein to explore and it was something I didn't know a lot about myself. And while I was there, I asked somebody who was working in the um, the hotel we were staying at. I, I asked him about the paintings. I said, there was something weirdly colonial about them. And I, mm-hmm. I, I could tell I tapped something that they weren't used to talking to tourists about. Mm-hmm. And it was just something in his reaction where he just kind of said, you're right. Yeah. And I'm not going to say anything more. Mm, interesting and, um, and then um uh, we went during one of our little outings we went we wrote we were we we visited reindeer and mm-hmm. um there was a group of people who who were descended from the sami you know people who who herded these animals and i asked them too and then they told me a completely horrific story that was related to the church that i mm-hmm. i did incorporate a little bit into babel okay. that again you want to ruin it but it was it's right. it's it's violent and disturbing and quite you know it really changes the face of where you are in that place yeah and yeah it was it was really an impactful experience that i tried to put into that book yeah well that's interesting and it's inter- you know going back to what we were saying originally about you know these these places that have this weird primal power and some of that power is I think rooted in this kind of dark history. You know, when I went to Scotland years ago for a horror film festival and I took a bus trip from Edinburgh up to Loch Ness and it was like a 12 hour bus trip up into the Highlands Mm -hmm. and literally everything that was pointed out to us by the tour guide was the site of some terrible massacre or, you know, we went by the the valley where I think it was the Campbells massacred the McDougals or whatever. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the history. <laughs> it was basically the story that inspired the Red Wedding and uh, Game of Thrones. Right. Yeah. And you know, or here's another area where oh, a bunch of you know the British starved a bunch of Highlanders to death. And when you go through these areas that have that kind of just dark history, you I think you feel it like seeps in in some way. Yes. New England very much has that feeling. Yeah. I've never been to Scandinavia, but I've got to imagine with some of that history with the Sami, that's got to have some of that there and the Vikings and stuff, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful country. I mean, just it was absolutely gorgeous. And I, uh-huh. I not having being a Floridian used to sun, I was actually <laughs> nervous about going there. I thought, my God, we're going there when the sun, you know, it's like you're right. not even gonna, the sun isn't going to come out. Well, it does sort of come out. It kind of yeah. peaks up and the s- sky becomes beautiful. Mm. But it is there. There's there's a darkness everywhere yeah. that I, I think because what you and I write, we kind of feel drawn to we, we're, we're drawn to notice it. Mm-hmm. And and try to understand how it, like you said, it's that history that that just permeates everything around us. And yeah. it's like you know, going back to Faulkner, you know, it's like the pat. What is he paraphrasing? The the past isn't in the past. It's not even the past. How does he say that? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, I I I'm, I would get it wrong too, but I, I know the quote. <laughs> yeah, something Maybe like I'll that. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, but that and that and it's interesting you talk about Faulkner um and Flannery O'Connor because and I guess that's a good segue because as you get into like Little Lagosi and particular Beasts of Vasaria County, like I was trying to think about how I would categorize your work in terms of like horror, you know, it's obviously horror, but like in terms of like subgenres. And your stuff's a little hard to pin down because I wouldn't call you an extreme horror writer. But then you have these moments, you know, that are pretty gross, <laughs> where you where you do kind of go for it. Where where do you feel like you fall? Because I think if I come down on anything that feels close, is sort of vaguely folk horror, Lovecraftian, Southern Gothic, maybe. Uh, but how does that <laughs> feel Let's to you? Like, or do you even <laughs> think about it? <laughs> well, I I do because I'm not sure either. Mm-hmm. And John Baltusberger, who runs Madness Heart Press, uh-huh. he said he's told me he said you're a Bizarro writer, and then I mm-hmm. think maybe sometimes, maybe in some ways, because I think about what yeah. the Bizarro writers are doing, I'm not really doing that either. But then you're but right. But I can see where he would say that, though. In my my new book, The Trick, I kind of lean a little bit into that. A little. The, the Trick is probably the most Bizarro thing okay. I've done, which is coming out May 14th. Right. But I'm attracted to folk horror because the land to me is so important the look mm-hmm. and that that's integral to folk horror but i don't know if i'm really necessarily doing folk horror mike arnson said little Lugosi's a neo folk horror book yeah and i, I i'm not that. sure what i'm not sure what that means though what what is neo folk <laughs> if anything folk right. horror is it folk horror be neo anything yeah that that's what i'm not sure about yeah, like I don't know what that means either, but yet it doesn't sound wrong to me. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but I'm yeah. not sure either where I fit in. I'm the, the weird tradition, the weird mm. fiction of um, somebody like uh, Thomas Ligotti or Robert Aikman. Yeah, me. for sure. But I don't know if I fit comfortably in that either. I'm kind of doing my own thing a little bit and hoping people like it. Uh, so one thing I feel like with particularly with both Little Lugosi and with Beasts of Vasaria County is that I feel like you do synthesize a lot of things. You know, it's a thing like people talk about this with Quentin Tarantino, but it's one of the things that I can I can kind of get a little eye rolly when people talk about this with Tarantino is how, you know, he's a blender and he throws all these genres together and blends it all together. And, you know, I feel like what you're doing is maybe a more grown-up version of that. (laughs) Because I can see the, I can see definitely 
the Southern Gothic influence. I feel like I can see the the cosmic horror and the folk horror influence. Um, I can definitely see, now that you mentioned it, I think I do see the Bizarro influence, although I tend to think of Bizarro as leaning much more heavily towards comedy. Yeah. And like the absurd you know yeah i think you you do incorporate elements of surrealism into your work and then you know i feel like i can see that tradition of of like the the kind of the pulp weird you know uh mm-hmm. that goes all the way back to lovecraft and like you said forward through people like uh thomas Ligotti. i i feel like i i get all of it there but then the way you combine all the elements it does feel pretty new and kind of hard to hard to pin down into one category yeah, well, I do. In Beasts of Assyria County, you have a character who's obsessed with Pulp Fiction. And, mm. and at right. one point, he, he he has a typewriter that he hopes may have belonged to Seabury Quinn, who was a famous right. Weird right. Tales author. Yeah, yeah, I, I love these different traditions. I'm very much a student of weird and horror fiction, mm. uh, including Bizarro. I do read some Bizarro. And yeah. um, I try to do something that's more uniquely me with some of these things, but I tend... I, I love the genre. I love it in the broad sense. I love it when writers do something new. Uh-huh. I love it when they do something old in a new way. Right. So I try to write things that reflect that. I try to write things that I would want to read, I guess, really what it comes yeah. down to. So let's talk about Little Lugosi a little bit. Yeah. Because <laughs> I remember you, I, I'm trying to remember if it was at StokerCon or KillerCon, but you read from that. It was kill. It was Killer Con. Yeah, I read the. It was Killer Con. I I read the scene. I think I read the scene that takes place in the woods, uh, with the first yeah. sighting of the minister. Yes. Yeah, and I don't want to just say it's a it's a giant pig doing something unspeakable. Yes. Um, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I remember you read that, and I was in because I had started listening to Beast of Azari County as I was driving out there from New Mexico. I got about, I think, halfway through the book. And so it hadn't gotten super weird yet. I mean, it definitely was like, I was loving the atmosphere and and the, you know, the mystery that we were kind of building to. But then when you did that reading from Little Lugosi, I was like, I was a little thrown because I was like, oh, this is different <laughs> than, <what I'm... laughs> than the Beast of Asari County. But of course, I was immediately intrigued. So talk about Little Lugosi a little bit, kind of where that came from and what your what your approach was. Well, I, I didn't know this until a few years ago that you could order a leech. Anybody can order a leech for medical reasons. Yeah, I had no idea. And that really kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And um that sort of led to a, an opportunity to incorporate this this monster pig, I guess. Yeah. Uh, mythical, this pig that may be something uncanny. That right. was in a short story I wrote um, called... Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's in, in the Infection Party, which is the first instance of a story with a minister. Although that the Infection Party came after the... Um, the Beast of Assyria, or the Little Lugosi, excuse me. But, but I um, ultimately, it's Little Lugosi is one of those things where I wrote it and later thought about what it meant and then had kept coming up with different ideas about what it meant. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've settled on, in some ways, it's about male fear of female bodies to some degree. Yeah. And and about reproduction, about birth, and just just having a good time with it really is what I was trying to do. I had so much fun writing Little Ghosty. In some ways, it's my favorite book because of how much fun it was to write. 
Yeah. The characters just, the, they came to life for me. And by the time I got halfway through, I had a sense of, oh, I know where this is going. I kind of, by that point, I realized I know what has to happen in the last scene. And I could really blow it if I don't do this right. <laughs> it's got to be gross and disgusting, but it has to make you feel something other than just gross, you know, grossness and repulsion. It yeah. has to be, there has to be something beautiful about that scene. And the weird thing is, for me, it's ultimately a happy ending. And yeah. even though on the surface it isn't. Yeah. I'm immensely proud of that book. And it's dear to my heart for a lot of reasons like that. Well, I think I think of everything of yours that I've read, it, it's probably my favorite as well. Thank you. And I think so. I to give just a little bit of the setup so people kind of understand. I don't want. And again, it's one that like you can't say too much about because it takes about eighteen left turns <laughs> <laughs> that are that are not expected. But it, you know, we've got a couple. Um, it's Trevor and Madeline, Madeline I believe. Yep. And he's constantly terrified that she's gonna leave him yeah. which that seems like there's some interesting backstory there yeah. with the characters um but it's never quite explained but he's very afraid that she's gonna leave him she seems kind of bored in the relationship she wants to get a pet but instead of getting a dog or a cat she orders this leech right. that she names little lugosi mm-hmm. and then meanwhile trevor works as a groundskeeper at college and it's set in Vasari yes is it is yeah yeah and some pigs are continually tearing up the landscaping of this college. So he and his coworker go hunting for the pigs. And he hears the story about the minister, this kind of mythical pig that's in the yeah. in the woods and kind of swamps behind behind the um, college. And then, you know, the story of the leech and the story of the minister of the pig. They come together in a very disturbing way. <laughs> But hopefully fun way. <laughs> it's very fun. And one thing, I think I felt that you were having fun writing that book. Oh, yeah. There's something about Little Lugosi that it feels like you were being kind of wicked yes. and enjoying being a little bit. I was. <laughs> a little you naughty with me. it. You caught me. Yeah. Definitely enjoying being a little wicked, a little <laughs> gross, a little perverted. But also, it yeah. is a, it, the subtitle is a love story. And I genuinely think it's a love story. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. No, it's funny. My... My feature film, Dead Billy, which you can find on Amazon if you want a little plug for myself. Um, but uh, the subtitle of that movie is This Is Not A Love Story. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but the joke of it is, and that comes from, there's a song by a band uh, named Big Black called Dead Billy. And the movie's not like an adaptation of the song, but it's just kind of a nod to it. And the chorus of the song is This Is Not A Love Song. So I kind of stole that a little bit. But uh, the the joke of the movie is that it is a love story. It's uh-huh. just a really dark, upsetting love story. I, that's the best kind of love story. Yeah. And so I loved that you called it a love story and that it genuinely is a love yep. story, but in a pretty disturbing way. Fucked up way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very fucked up way. <laughs> um, <laughs> talk a little bit about, so, so you talked about, you know, the... What I guess what was it? Where did the connection happen? Where you you read about you know this ability anyone can order a leech uh, just in a jar, and then combining it with this uh, story, previous story about the minister about the pig. Well, where where did that connection happen? Because it's not a like direct one to one connection. No, it, it somewhere in the basement of my consciousness, I guess. Um, uh-huh. I I, wor- I work at a college where the pigs were tearing up 
the the ground the the um, landscape and okay. it was wonderful to come in and see these pigs sometimes in a cluster and they're beautiful yeah. and and i but it was driving the college crazy so it <laughs> sure. turned out that they were of course i i you know i started to think about it from the grounds crew's perspective because every day they have to go out and clean up this area and then i right. found out that they were basically the college was sending out you know crews to get the pigs to, to relocate them which really means something terrible, I think, I suspect. Yeah. And, um, and you know, after a while, you don't see them anymore. Mm. And, and to me, it was something about the pigs, the wildness of the pigs that sort of lent itself to this, this monster, this, this creature of nature. I mean, the minister is at once nature, unbridled nature, right. but also the past. It, it's rooted in, you know, this past that nobody wants to think about or nobody can remember and once again, it comes back to the land yeah. and that's, that's always speaking to me. And somehow the leech just kind of tied in somehow in a way that I can't explain. The, yeah. No, I love that. I love when your mind, you know, cause the, the worst, you know, famously the worst question you can ask any writer, I think particularly a horror writer is where do you get your ideas? You know, but what it is usually is your something in the reptile part of your brain makes a connection between this thing and this thing. And yeah. then you combine them and now you've got this third thing. And I love it when that happens and when you don't quite understand why, you know, <laughs> I like surprising myself when I write this stuff. Yeah. If it, if it surprises me and it delights me, maybe somebody else will be too. And that's, yeah, I just love yeah. those moments of discovery when you realize, oh, this is really going in this direction. Well, let's see what happens. Right, right. Like, yeah, no, I mean, that that's when, it, you know, when I come up with a story idea and then I write it and it kind of comes out exactly how I thought it would be at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Those are usually the stories that I'm the least in love. With. Right. Because it's like, okay, you know, I guess I wrote the thing that I thought I was going to write when I start writing something and then it just veers in some direction I didn't see or, or some new element comes in that I didn't expect. Or, you know, sometimes I'll like have like some little uh, throwaway reference early on in the story. And then all of a sudden it becomes like the linchpin for the client. Isn't that great when you, you, yeah. you don't realize why some, you put something in there and later you realize that's why that was there. Right. Something in your subconscious knew already that neat right neat exactly it's like it's like the story is telling you what it is yes. rather than you telling the story yeah and when i have an idea and i just write it and it kind of comes out it feels like okay i told a story but when the story tells itself to me mm -hmm. that's that's when i feel like it's really what's the phrase cooking with gas yeah you know? it's like you're taking dictation from something else right you know exactly <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's one of the reasons that, you know, because I, obviously I, I spent a lot of time working in the film industry and kind of working as a screenwriter and uh, trying to kind of break in that way. And one thing that kind of drove, pushed me out of it, I think eventually where I just kind of lost interest in it was, you know, so much of your, your work as a screenwriter in the film industry is you're, you're someone is giving you an idea, then they expect you to execute it mm. the way they want, you know, a producer will have a treatment. They hire you to write this script. And then, and if you veer, you know, if your, if your imagination tries to take you kind of off the reservation, so to speak, they don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But that's not what they're hiring you to do. You know? Yeah. How do you maintain uh, your own voice in that? It For me, I couldn't. 
in the long run, I felt like I couldn't, you know, when I was doing uh, independent stuff and like, I have a lot of short films, you know, that stuff was much closer to my heart. But when I was doing work for hire, um, I, you know, I think some writers are able to, I have some friends who still work in the industry, you know, fairly successfully doing that. And I think they've managed to hang on to their voice, but I couldn't, you know, for me, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And I think some of it is I'm just too weird. Like my brain is just too weird. And it would try to take me too far afield from what I was being asked to do. So there was always, you know, there was always that just the producer gave me a round hole to fill and I come at them with a square to try and shove in there. And after a while, it was just like, you know, this is diminishing returns. Um, And I'm going to get back to, you know, my first love is always fiction. And so I just kind of moved back to that. And it feels like a much more natural fit for the reasons that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because it really does, I do feel that like it's freed me up to sort of be able to listen to the story that wants to tell itself to me rather than kind of impose my own will on it. There's just something about narrative storytelling that... You know, yeah. I love film and I'm I'm not a filmmaker like you are. And I, I don't think I could ever be. But um, narrative storytelling just has that power to it that I yeah. love. And I just I wish more people read. Yeah. You know, you feel bad for people who don't read because they don't realize. Right. You could get so much from this <laughs> this medium that. Yeah. Well, that was another thing I, I realized, you know, because I was, you know, I'm obviously wearing my taxi driver shirt. I'm I'm a movie fan, have always been. But I realized at certain points, like all my influences were not movies. You know, my biggest influences were stuff that I'd read, you know, authors. And so at a certain point, it was just like, why not go back to that? Because, you know, when I was really focused on being a screenwriter, one thing I found is that I wasn't reading as much mm, anymore. Interesting. And it just, you know... Being able to get back, like I didn't know there was a whole generation of horror writers that I kind of missed, kind of from the from the two thousands to maybe the mid two thousand tens, you know, because I wasn't reading that much. Um, I was because I was so focused on writing screenplays. Coming back to the genre after kind of walking away, I didn't walk away from it, but really like focusing back on it after so much time it was really exciting because this is when i found all these new writers that i've kind of followed was that that was kind of the dorchester years right with those Mm. those paperbacks that was is that that the era you're thinking of with um like the elizabeth massey stuff and Mm. Yeah, brilliant. By the way, I love I love that she has a lifetime achievement award now. Yeah, Elizabeth Math, incredible. Yeah, that era there. That's kind of an uns. I don't know if it's an unsung era, but mm-hmm. but that era of the Dorchester paperbacks was just amazing. Yeah, and I missed a lot of that because you know from kind of the early two thousands forward, I just I wasn't paying nearly as much attention. You know, one of my favorite writers uh, and someone I'd love to get on the podcast at some point is Gemma Files. Oh yeah, and she's. She's been working for quite a while. I had no idea, <laughs> you know, until probably about 2017, 2018. I'd never, you know, I didn't know who she was. And then I started, you know, diving into her back catalog and I realized I'd actually had read some of her work, but I just hadn't made the connection. Experimental film is amazing. It's such a good book. Yeah, it's it's one of my all-time favorite, And I think because she really does such a great job of bringing in, you know, because she's also a filmmaker and she's a film critic. Right. And she's got this whole history with uh, experimental film and avant-garde film that she's able to bring into this book in a really unexpected way. Yeah. Who are some of your influences, the writers you were mentioning, if, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yeah. Who are some sure. of yours? 
well, early on, you know, Stephen King was big, and then uh, that he led me to Clive Barker because mm-hmm. um, I really started reading horror seriously, kind of late eighties, early nineties. I was, was probably like. 12, 13 years old. But then very quickly kind of started going back to like the classic stuff and really fell in love with a lot of that kind of 30s through 50s pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one thing Rebecca and I talked about when she was on the other podcast recently is, you know, how much the Twilight Zone influenced us. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so that was a few years where I was reading a lot of like classic horror anthologies. But then, you know, sort of around 91, 92, I found the Splatterpunks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which was a little bit kind of at the tail end of that era, but that's when I, so I kind of came in a little bit late. But then it was John Skip, Craig Specter, David yeah. J. Scow, and, you know, Poppy Z. Bright was a big influence for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that kind of took me through the 90s. And then, like I said, I kind of moved away from the genre because I felt like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, everything was zombies, everything was torture porn, or everything was like very wink wink for a while you know it was it was all the the pride and prejudice and zombies kind of stuff but you know nothing wrong with that but it just didn't really appeal to me so much Uh so i was just not paying that close attention but then in recent years i've come back and you know gemma files is a huge uh recent influence uh brian hodges uh skidding into oblivion collection oh yeah which I'm, I want to say that came out in like the early 2010s, but I read it, I think, in 2018. That one was just, that was like a stick of dynamite going off. Yeah, there. we don't talk about Hodges enough. I think he's really good. Yeah. Yeah, he is really good. And I, you know, I need to go back and reread some of his earlier stuff because I kind of found him early on when I was reading a lot of the Splatterpunks mm-hmm. and then hadn't read him for years. And then uh, he put out Skidding into Oblivion and his novel, The Immaculate Void. And I read those kind of back to back and it was, it, it really reignited um, a lot of my love of cosmic horror because mm-hmm. he was doing it in such a modern way, you know, like losing a lot of the old Lovecraft tropes that are pretty tired at this point <laughs> and i i'm i'm gonna mess up the name of this um um writer and in fact i'm gonna look look it up just so i don't mess it up but as far as lovecraftian writers go i recently read oh it's anders fager swedish cults huh. has there it there's a story in it, I swear, is the best Lovecraftian story I've ever read. It's absolutely really? just phenomenal. And you ought to check him out. It's There's a um, Valancourt translation of his collection. And it, once again, the collection is Swedish cults. I love this book. It's really good. How do you spell his name? Uh, Fager, F-A-G-E-R. Anders Fager? Yeah. And, and it's the opening story, which I'm, I'm blanking on the title, which is just, it's amazing. It's just like a tour de force Lovecraftian story. And uh, okay, if, see if I can find it, um, the title of it, not finding it right away, but it is, oh, here it is. The, For- the Furies from Boris, which is about teenage girls in a Lovecraftian context. It's amazing. And how do you spell that last word? B-O-R-A-S. The Furies from Boras. The Furies from Boras. Yeah, I, I highly recommend that. Just for that story okay. alone, it's amazing. I just bookmarked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking for good kind of modern Lovecraftian stuff because, I mean, I love Lovecraft as much as everyone, but, you know, pretty dated. A lot of ideas in his yeah. work that I think we have 
it's we're, hard to, we're well served to leave behind yeah exactly exactly it's some unfortunate yeah. stuff like that but and it's hard yeah. to make it feel cosmic horror feel fresh yeah. and i think for me this collection made it feel fresh again okay yeah. I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out because that that i'm always looking for stuff like that well, I want to move into talking uh, about Beasts of Asaria County and specifically, so we t- we were talking as we were kind of preparing to meet up today, you mentioned, and I don't, I'm not sure I'm pronounce, going to pronounce his name right, but Paul, is it Nashi? Nashi, yes. Who, uh, d- just tell us a little bit about Paul Nashi and then how he influenced the Beasts of Asaria County. So, um... In many ways, The Beast of Hysteria County is not just a Southern Gothic novel, but it is my homage to the films of Paul Nashie. Uh-huh. And he was kind of, he's often called the Lon Chaney of, of Spain or the Spanish Lon Chaney. Yeah. His life is so storied and interesting. He was born, or he came of age around the time of the Spanish Civil War. His family was engulfed in that in that conflict. Uh, there's a story about how there was a soldier burst in on him and his mother, and it turned out to be his father, uh, who'd been, you know, huh. kind of you know ended up in be you know fighting for one side in that. Yeah. And there's this this theme, this element of this anti-fascist element that runs through his work as a result of the the, the Franco regime in Spain. Oh, interesting. And he became Paul Nash. His real name is Jacinto Molina. Uh-huh. And uh, if you eagle-eyed view readers who look at the dedication of the Beast of Surrey County, it's dedicated to JM, which is Jacinto Molina. Okay. <laughs> and, um, he became Paul Nashy because he wrote a script for a horror movie, and it was called, the title of the horror movie is Mark of the Wolfman. Right. And the story goes that he, at the time, he was just a, um, he was kind of a gopher on film sets, and he'd written this script. And so, you know, there's some allusion to this this character I wrote in uh, Beast of Surrey County as kind of a simple right background he wrote he's he's trying to write scripts for films but he's working as a gopher right but in paul nashi's case he wrote the mark of the wolfman and they were gonna they needed somebody to play the wolfman and so they talked about getting lon cheney but this is 1968 so lon cheney was right he was getting sick he had cancer and he, he couldn't play the part anymore this would be lon cheney jr lon cheney jr and um so Somebody looked at Nashi and said, "Well, you're you're kind of you're a bulky guy. You're a strong looking guy." And, and Nashi was um, a weightlifter. Oh, interesting. And they said, "Well, why don't you play him?" <laughs> and Nashi, who never acted before, said, "Okay, but he needed a new name." They said, "Yacinto Molina will never sell movies on the international market." So right. he had to come up with a pseudonym quickly. And I, I forget the details of how he came up with Paul Nashi, but he became Paul Nashi. And the movie *Mark of the Wolfman* was brought to America as Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, <laughs> right. even though there's no Frankenstein character in it. Yeah, they never thought that would sell more movie tickets, and so that. That came out in 68. And then he, that's the first appearance of the character, um, Valdemar Daninsky. Uh-huh. And what happens with Paul Nashi is he's taken that character through different films and reinvented, he, he gets reinvented every time. Yeah. And my favorite is The Werewolf Shadow that that is uh, was made in 71. It was directed by Leon Kumlovsky. Uh-huh. And that's a beautiful, it's like that, it's, it's an exploitation film. It's Euro horror. It's full of, yeah. you know naked breasts and, and blood everywhere <laughs> right it's it's, it's the kind of werewolf movie that you always wanted you know you want lon cheney jr and the wolf man you want to see him tear right. somebody apart they only talk about it. you never get to see it yeah so these films managed to kind of show what you never got to see and they're they're beautiful films i mean 
I'm not saying they're great movies, okay, but they're there's something beautiful to me about them. Yeah. Well, I was able to find one of them yeah. uh, and watch, and it was a later one in this series. And it's hard to, um, you know, they all looks like they all have like 18 different titles depending on yes. where. <laughs> yes. Um. So it was called. Uh, it was like the Wolf Man, or it was like werewolf versus the vampire woman i think that's that's, that's what i'm talking about it's uh that's okay it was the same one werewolf shadow okay and you know you have you have a character in it who is really i i forget the name of the character in the film but it's really elizabeth bathory yeah so he they're very much mom was it wandessa i think yes that's the it. movie and so right. you know he went on after that he made dr jekyll versus the wolfman where <laughs> dr jekyll offering a potential cure to lycanthropy yeah. But then they reached eventually Nashi started directing them himself with Japanese financing. Oh, okay. And one of them is Night of the Werewolf, which is really a remake of Werewolf Shadow. And it was made in 1980, which of course is the year the Howling, around the time the Howling and American Werewolf in London came out. Yeah, it, I think that was the other one that was coming up when I was looking for a stuff. So hence that movie's kind of was an utter failure. Okay. To market. But he maintained his Japanese marketing or his, his financiers in Japan. And he made this just absolute masterpiece called The Beast and the Magic Sword in 1983. Oh, okay. And that is set in feudal Japan. So he takes the Valdemar Daninsky character. He ends up in feudal Japan. And there's an epic <laughs> scene where he fights a tiger that apparently they had to make sure the tiger ate like 14 goats or something like that before <laughs> you get in, you know, the scene. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And there's something about his direction. And he became increasingly self-referential uh-huh. with his films, eventually with The Howl of the Devil, which is about an actor like Paul Nashi. And eventually, though, if you're listening to this saying, oh, I'm going to look up something, I'm going to see something with this actor, and you happen to see Tomb of the Werewolf, please don't look, watch that, the Fred Olin Ray film, because it's terrible. Okay. It's <laughs> It's one of the last ones he did. He oh. made it in the United States. It's basically a Fred Olin Ray exploit. Nothing against Fred Olin Ray, but, but it's not, it's just not the same. Yeah. And uh, it, it's lacking something. Okay. Yeah. That one I think I saw because I was having a hard time finding some of his earlier stuff. Um, but I did find you said it was the werewolf shadow. I saw it was werewolf versus the vampire woman. Yeah, or also known as Night of Walpurgis in Night of Walpurgis, like La Noche de Walpurgis yes. or El Noche de Walpurgis. Yeah. I so I watched it and it was interesting watching it with the context of knowing that you had taken inspiration from that right or beast of a Surrey county because i could very much see the influence now it, yeah it's funny because you know you watch it it's very 70s mm-hmm. it's pretty trashy in like the mm-hmm. best way in the best way it's got like you know some sort of goofy 70s music the the print i was watching it was on the roku channel so i don't think it was like a particularly remastered version so it was pretty washed out but there was some stuff in that movie that i found actually quite frightening yeah the imagery of of the vampire women i think it's her friend guinevere or is it guinevere i think there's a scene about halfway through the movie where the character of elvira is one of the two women and who's come to this cat they're looking for the grave i think of this uh, countess vandessa who's like the she's basically elizabeth bath right right and she's and i'm trying to remember exactly how but somehow elvira ends up in a truck with this 
pretty scuzzy dude. He was like talking about how much he's like, I love your red hair. Never cut your head. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and you see just the look on her face where she's just like, stop talking to me. But then they stop the truck and all of a sudden these vampire women kind of come out of the shadows and, and it's in this just slow motion with this eerie music behind them. And that was, it was actually like kind of a startling image. Well, have you ever seen the uh, the Blind Dead films that uh, uh-huh. the Tombs of the Blind Dead? Yeah, that was very much influ- influential in in, in Diasorio's Blind with the slow mo, the Blind Dead. Yeah, I could see. Okay, I could see that. And that scene you're referring to, you're you're watching the English version. Uh-huh. The dialogue changes if you watch the Spanish version. Oh, really? You realize Scuzzy guy is actually serving Wandessa, um, and it's not just yeah that was not clear upon her. It's, no, it changes the yeah. dubbing. Okay, there's a glory. This is a prize item in my Blu-ray collection. They now have a 4K version of this film, and it has all the different versions that you can see with the different language versions, and they do differ in interesting ways. Well, it was interesting watching because it was clearly dubbed, but I was watching the the lips and it looked like some of the dialogue was maybe in Spanish that had been dubbed over yes. in English. And then some of it looked like it was actually spoken in English, but it was clearly dubbed. It looked like, you know, that's the way the Italians always used to make movies um, is they would never shoot with sound on set because they would have actors from all over the exactly. place. And then they would just fanatically sound out exactly. words. And you can put in whoever's voice. And so, you know, because you would have like 18 different accents in these yeah. movies. Well, one of the things about Nashi in, in The Beast of Vissaria County is he wrote a, an autobiography called Memoirs of a Wolfman. And okay. in this, there's this tantalizing moment in that biography, autobiography, where he talks about you know, making all these, you know, European exploitation films involving, you know, uh-huh. demonic possession, werewolves, vampires. Apparently, he alludes to this experience he had where a co-star took him to a black mass. Huh. And he said, he makes it sound very sinister yeah. and very, you know, he sounds like he, was, he he describes the scent in the air, but he will not tell you what happened. And it took place in Munich. And the only thing he says is, it was a hotel that Hitler used Ooh. with his henchmen to come up with some, you know, their plans for the war. Yeah. And I, that does influence a major middle portion of right. the Beast of Hathor right. County where I really want to use fiction to kind of speculate on what happened exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. That's really interesting because I remember that from the book. So let's talk a little bit. I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to talk a little bit about Beast of Azaria County. So just give us like the the elevator pitch setup for the, because it's another one where it's hard to talk about because a lot of, it's got a lot of twists and turns. Give us kind of the setup for it. The elevator pitch. Okay, let me see. I haven't done this yeah. in a long time. So <laughs> it is uh, Southern Gothics, a Southern Gothic narrative right. with werewolves, witches, and the hidden history of what Vissaria of, of Vissaria County. Right. And I don't know if that that's the kind of pitch that would appeal to people, but that's <laughs> that would basically be my elevator pitch for the book. Yeah. And it and so you know and it, our lead character is I'm not, it's been a Maggie. while since I've Maggie. Yes. Is that her name? Maggie. Yeah. Who has come back to Vissaria County. She's escaping uh, an abusive relationship. She's come back with her son. They've moved in with her father, who's a real kind of son of a bitch. <laughs> He's kind of an Archie Bunker a little bit. He's like an Archie Bunker, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then she meets essentially their neighbor, right. who 
is clearly who seems seems to have yeah. taken residence in this this old this strangely shaped you know Florida estate right. that goes back to the time of land barons, railroad barons, that kind of thing. Right. They call it the Sabbath House, right? Yeah, the Sabbath House. And yeah. you you get a sense of what that history was and of and and what it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Right. And it allowed me to kind of, you know, basically invent part of Vissaria County that had not, yeah. I had not told yet. And I love these old houses. I love these old estate homes in Florida. They're, they're fascinating to me, especially when they've been let go. And so this one had to be let go and just kind of un, you know, maintained. And I had a good time writing it. Like, I, I guess, like everything else I have. I had a good time writing it. Well, it's got such a sense of atmosphere. The entire novel does. And you really do. You've got a modern horror story with some, and I want to get just a little bit to the political commentary in there, with, uh, but with some kind of very modern political commentary against the backdrop of a Faulkner-esque or Flannery O'Connor-esque Southern Gothic. But then you've brought in this like, 70s what would you say euro trash kind of paul nashy movie influence into it and it's that combination of elements is so unique thank you and it feels seamless and it's interesting because they are very and after finally watching one of his films it's like it's a very it's a different it's a very distinct type of gothic storytelling than the faulkner you know, yeah. so to be able to bring those together so seamlessly, I thought was really interesting and really Thank effective. Thank you. And you mentioned yeah. listening it to it on audio. Yes, yeah. got to give a shout out to Jen Lee who narrated it. She just did. She was fantastic. Oh my god, she did such a fantastic job with it. Yeah, and she's everything she does is so good. Yeah, and I think I was telling you this uh, when we talked at KillerCon, where I was like, I love listening to audiobooks, but there's every so often I'll put on an audiobook and immediately the narrator just ruins. Yeah, it. it's like I can't, I can't do it. Like you can just tell they have the wrong voice, they don't understand the story. Yeah, and then every so often you get a narrator who's just like just finds every nuance and just brings it to life. She. Jen Lee will, she works hard to understand the ins and outs of the characters, the stories. I mean, yeah. and it, it was clear from her, our correspondence that she was, she wanted to know each one uh-huh. as who they were as people. And boy, she, she does her homework in that regard and just, yeah, it shows and the kind of product she produces. Yeah. I mean, it was very, cause I think, I think I was going back and forth a little bit between the audiobook and the Kindle book. So it's, it's always interesting to me to kind of see what voices I put on the characters <laughs> versus the voice that like a narrator will. And I will say like, she was doing a better job than I was doing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it was very, it's very good. But I do want to mention, so I, I did happen to, I remember talking to you briefly and I was, I told you I was listening to it and you said something about like, yeah, I think I pissed off the Trumpers with this one. Oh, it, it is. Um, yeah. When I looked at your Goodreads and and I was going through some of the Goodread reviews and you had a few one stars, which surprised me. Yeah. And so I clicked and without fail, it was all someone who's yeah, mad somebody at who's the mad at politics. The politics book, <laughs> which I, you know, I, I try not to make it, it. The point is not the politics, but I no. it kind of lent itself to, you know, I'm not living in a vacuum. I'm affected by right. what's going on. It, it It's sometimes it seeps into my work and it yeah. kind of maybe it seeped into that one more than any others recently, but it definitely, it, if there's a reader who didn't like it, it was that reader who has a, 
you know, those politics that I, I guess they feel very strongly about yeah. that kind of political stance. But at the same time, there's reviews on Goodread. Who, there's one that, that, and I don't spend a lot of time reading reviews, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, but I did notice one that made me feel really good, said, I, I can't stop thinking about this book now. Yeah. And just that to me just made writing, I mean, it was already you know, worth spending my time on this book. Yeah. It made me feel really good to hear somebody say that. Well, and I and I would agree, like that book stuck with me. Thank you. That and Little Lugosi and Officer, I keep forgetting the title. Baby Boy Blue. It's okay. Officer Baby Boy Blue. <laughs> Those three stories have really stuck with me. Yeah. Well, it was interesting, you know, because like I agree with you. I, you know, the politics are in that do pop up in Beast of Asari County are unapologetic, yeah. I would say. But you're right, they're not the point of the story. And I also didn't feel like it was polemical because like you have the character Vernon, her father, who is very much like a Trump voter and you treat him- oh, He would definitely vote for Trump. Yeah, yeah, you treat him with, I mean, he's not a likable guy in a lot of ways, but I think you treat him with like some real dignity and respect. You didn't have to necessarily. I love Vernon and Vernon does have a yeah. moment of redemption. It's not a political redemption. It's a personal one about yeah. how he hadn't necessarily treated his daughter very well. Right. And um, it's interesting. My my mom <laughs> read this book <laughs> and I think she, in some ways, she connected herself personally to it. Although some of the things in it were very much, she, in many ways, Maggie was inspired by my wife. Okay. Who, in fact, I, I in the the second half of the dedication is, you know, to my wife, Geraldine, who, who did some of the things that Maggie did. Huh. And so I get kind of gave Maggie some of her background and she, my wife likes that, no. you know, she said, Oh yeah, Maggie, Maggie and I did this, <laughs> but, but I like Vernon as a character and I didn't want him to be one dimensional. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I want to be able to talk with people I disagree with. Right. I mean, I, don't I think it's really we're in a scary place when we can't talk. Right. But I I can't I can't pretend to be unaffected by the world I'm living in. It 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 does touch upon my fiction. Well, and what I what I really appreciated that you were doing in that book in particular is you weren't afraid of going there with the politics, but you also I mean it's not a political novel. And I don't want to like misrepresent it to anyone listening. Like it's it, it is part of the world. You know, it's the politics that are in the book are part of the world because it's the world that the characters are living. Yes. It's not, you're not coming in with, with uh, like a message, even though I think your stance is probably fairly clear yeah. to any reader, but that's not what it's about. You're not coming and preaching at us, or but you are reflecting this particular time period in this particular world. Yes. And I thought it felt very organic and very, like I said, you treat, you treated characters with respect that a lot of writers wouldn't. Um, so it was interesting seeing some of the heat that you got. Again, it's just, you know, it's a few people on Goodreads. I don't want to overstate it. You know, where people just couldn't see past that. Well, the, you know, the the part, the reason that the politics inevitably slipped in was, again, it's very much an homage to Paul Nashie. Yeah. Who survived fascism. Right. Well, that that deeper context isn't because I didn't realize any of that, but that deeper context, it does put it in a in a different light. Yeah. And, and some even some of that European exploitation cinema, especially from Spain, yeah. was in many ways subtle digs at a fascist government. Right. And which they were operating under. Exactly. And so it kind of yeah. it I will say this it happened honestly when it when it occurs in the book. So yeah. 
Well, I think, I mean, it was, I gave it five stars. Oh, it was one of my yeah. top books that I read last year. So I'm going to, I don't want to keep you too much longer. And I appreciate you spending the amount of time that you have. <laughs> this is fun. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to uh, have you on here. And I do want to give you a chance. You've got, you've got a couple things. I think one, uh, the trick will probably be coming out around the time that the uh, episode's coming okay. out. And then you've also got Table for Three, which I've talked to Rebecca about a little Table bit. Table for Three. Yes. With Rebecca Rowland and Holly Ray Garcia. Yeah. And that's a compendium of three novellas uh, written one each written. Uh, we've each written one. That's going to benefit the Houston Food Bank, or I should say a food bank. um, They just, you know, Rebecca is just such a master of psychological horror. And Holly just, Holly knows how to get under your skin with with things like body horror. And and, uh, I'm hoping mine is different from there. And I think it is. It's going to be kind of different vibes. You can have three very different takes on food related, food risk related horror with that and we're we're all three really excited about holly did an amazing job of putting it together and editing it and just all three of us are so proud to be part of it yeah i think it's probably my most anticipated book that hasn't come out yet (laughs) that i'm looking forward to the most and then uh i didn't know about the trick until recently and then i happened to see you were posting about it so tell us a little bit about that so the trick is very much a um i'm gonna call it's not a sequel in any ways but it's it it shares a certain kind of sensibility to the lugosi as well as to the reattachment which is um I'm 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 kind of I'm calling them the Vissaria County cycle. Right. Um and it's not quite a it's a little too long to be a novella and it's kind of short for a novel. It's kind of it's in this nebulous, you know, word count. Yeah. So I'm calling it a short novel. Okay. But it's about a magic trick that goes wrong that causes the protagonist to end up with a tattoo that he can't get rid of. Mm. And it leads him to once again, you know, the buried histories and uh occult machinations uh signs of demonic forces and a tattoo artist who may have been around for thousands of years and still with us that sounds that sounds like right up my alley sounds uh, almost sounds a little clive barker-esque to me it, it it is but it well i, I can't compare myself to clive barker but <laughs> it is a little more grotesque i think in some ways than little Gosi. okay but i think if you like i'm hoping that if you like little Gosi, you'll like this book too okay well i'm gonna put links to both that and uh table for three in the show notes excellent and uh, with that, I think we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. But thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And I, I'm, you know, I really appreciate the time you've spent with me. And it's always good to talk to you, Scotty. Yeah. Well, hopefully, are you going to be at StokerCon this year? I will. I sure will. I'm hoping to make it out there. It's I'm I'm way behind on the planning oh. <laughs> stages of that. I've had a lot going on, family stuff, but I'm hoping to I'm hoping to make it out there. So maybe I'll see you out there. Excellent. I hope so. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And this has been another episode of Horror from the High Desert. And I'll be back with you guys again uh, in a couple weeks. So goodbye.